Today on the podcast, I want to recap some of the things that we talked about last night at the whiteboard. I intentionally did not record last night's talk, and that was really refreshing. Sometimes it's really enjoyable just to talk to the people in the room with no worry about all the people in wildly different contexts all over the world and how they might be feeling, thinking, misinterpreting, but not able to just raise their hand and ask a question right then and there. And it seems fun to me to turn off the recorder from time to time and just be fully present in the room. So that's what I did. But then I wanted to come back today and talk into this microphone and see what happens. Can I regurgitate (laughs) some of what we chewed on last night together from Mark chapter 9, one of the sayings of Jesus. Here we go. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you, better for you, to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for who? For you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's not talking to people who don't know him. And I find it really interesting that to the people who believe in him, who know him really well, he says, boys, listen, sin can lodge within you, it can grow, it can spread, and it can take over and then take you down. It can take you all the way down to hell. So you have to get it out. Even if you have to give up parts of who you are to get it out, get it out. There's no price to pay that's too high if you get free, and I want you free. We say things like, all sin's the same to God, and we all sin every day in word, thought, and deed. Therefore, our spiritual state doesn't really matter at all. The only thing that matters is, are we in Christ or not? So the person who sins a little every day is in the same exact condition as the person who sins greatly every day. All that matters is legal forgiveness. And being in Christ, it is thought about like this, is kind of like if you took a cat turd, that's us, and you dipped that cat turd into a white can of paint so that it was coated in white. The outside of it was perfectly clean and pure. That's the righteousness of Christ, but the inside nature has not been changed. Now, friends, that is not the gospel of Jesus. That is not the message of the kingdom. That is not the call to discipleship of Jesus. It is not the proclamation of Peter. That is definitely not the understanding of what is happening to those who come to faith in Jesus that Paul explained, but it is very much an American concept. All sin is the same to God. That's a partial truth. We all sin every day in word, thought, and deed. Another partial truth. And then a faulty conclusion. Therefore, Our holiness doesn't matter. All that matters 
is do we believe the right things about Jesus? Do we have eternal life insurance? This saying of Jesus about cutting off our hand, cutting off our foot, plucking out our eye, whatever it takes to get sin out of our life because it will take us to hell forever if we don't, makes no sense with those assumptions. He takes our freedom deadly seriously. He takes our wholeness deadly serious. And he wants us to do it too for our own sake. He keeps saying, better for you. It's better for you. It's better for you. He does a cost-benefit analysis and he says, no matter what price you have to pay to get free, pay it. And, And if you and I did take a moral inventory every single day, I think most of us would be able to identify some areas of sin or imperfection where we are still missing the mark and we are still less than love, right? But that's not the issue. The issue is, if I, ha- if I know Jesus, I'm growing towards something. And the issue is my heart's orientation to Jesus. What direction, what trajectory am I moving in relation to Jesus? L- look, I could be a moral person who grew up in a great home, but my heart is turned away from the Lord, and in eternity that trajectory away from the Lord continues, right? The end result is total destruction of the person me. Or I could be a complete shambles of a mess of a person, like the thief on the cross, but my heart turns toward Jesus, and in that moment, he says, you'll be with me in paradise, because the trajectory continues. It goes back to a teaching that I remember learning in seminary called bounded sets versus centered sets. In bounded sets, we're only concerned about where's the boundary, How do we define who's in and who's out? So we're focused on the external boundary marker between those who have stepped across the line and have joined us inside the group and who is outside the group. So we tend to be obsessed with whatever behaviors demarcate the line between those in and those out. Whereas a centered set is less concerned about the question of who is in and who is out and is more concerned with what is the main center we are intending to move toward. And it seems to me that the kingdom is like a centered set where people from Gentile backgrounds, Jesus says, who are asking the right questions and who are longing for the right things are actually closer to the kingdom than those who have been handed the law and the prophets and the covenants but whose hearts have been hardened against the God and the presence and the very voice, and they're more fixated on some of the external laws and signposts of who, where's the external line? Which is interesting, right? That sinners tended to love Jesus and the religious leaders tended to resist Jesus. Okay, but back to the point at hand. Jesus is dealing with our condition, and he seems to say what dominates our souls in life determines our destiny in eternity. What dominates our soul in life determines our destiny in eternity. If sin dominates and eats our lunch in life, then we're slaves to sin, and the end result of that is death. This is not complicated. This is not rocket science. If God's Spirit dominates our life in this life, then we will be ruled by peace, and the result will be God's righteousness and immortality. This is a lifestyle that we take on. Jesus' focus, in other words, is on our real condition and not just our legal standing later after death. Grace is more than legal forgiveness, but man, grace does involve legal forgiveness. Praise God, I'm forgiven. I don't earn it. I don't perform in order to get it. I simply receive it, though I don't deserve it. 
Praise God. Grace is positional righteousness. I have the righteousness of Christ. I am seated in heavenly places with Christ. I didn't earn it. I was given it. I said a yes, and the gift came upon me. I was counted righteous apart from works. That is a truth. Grace is freedom from a performance-based value. If I screw up today, my value doesn't change to the heart of the Father. But grace is even more than that. Grace doesn't end there. It is also healing for my soul. It is also renewal for my mind. It is also the deepest yearnings and needs of my heart being met in the love of God experienced and poured out in Christ because Christ literally comes to dwell in my personhood here on earth. Grace is never a license to sin. It's the power to change. Jesus didn't say, hey, come watch this great movie about me doing the impossible. It's very entertaining. And at the end, I'll give you a legal gift. No, he said, follow me. Let me train you in what it means to live as the sons and daughters of God. I'm going to show you, and then I'm going to explain, and then I'm going to watch you do it, and we're going to talk about what worked and what didn't, and then we're going to make changes, and you're going to improve. It's going to start out feeling impossible. It's going to graduate to feeling difficult. Eventually, through practice, it will become much easier. And then a while from now, it'll happen by muscle memory. Come be my disciple. Come become my apprentice. Come let me mentor you. You. Me. A real relationship with a person, not with a dead book. Let's go. You and me. So, is he saying, like one of my friends the other day seemed to be saying, oh, Tim, you don't take that passage seriously since you have two hands, two feet, and two eyes. Is he saying you can't get to heaven unless you're limping and blind and one-handed? No, of course not. What's his point? His point is, make whatever effort, take whatever steps you need to take to get sin out of your life. And if you can't, then get those things that it's attached to out of your life. Give up freedoms if you have to, to get free. I've actually applied this in my life in various ways, in various ways. One of the first ways was when I first met Jesus, my old, I came straight out of my old lifestyle. And for me, the music that I used to listen to, I very much associated it with my old sinful lifestyle. So I burned it. And somebody would say, well, that's extreme. And I remember my dad tried to get me to, to not burn certain CDs. And I was like, please just let me do this. And I did. Because for me, even though it's not a sin to listen to secular music for probably most people, for me, it was a freedom that I had to give up to get free. Another time that, that this happened to me was, was alcohol. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink at all. In fact, the Bible says that wine is a blessing. Drunkenness is a sin. Addiction is slavery. It says don't use your freedom in a way that harms those who are weak in this area. And if you're weak in this area, don't use your weakness to lasso others into legalism. Wine's a blessing. Drunkenness is a sin. It's a sin to be addicted. Don't use your freedom in a way that harms others and don't use your weakness in a way that harms others. But I was trying to reprogram my conscience, which I thought was maybe formed by my Christian upbringing to feel guilty about alcohol, maybe especially because of my past of getting drunk all the time. Not all the time, on the weekends usually, but sometimes during the week. Okay, fine. A lot. For whatever reason, I was trying to redeem alcohol to get back to biblical practice of drinking without getting drunk and to the glory of God, as so many New Testament passages say. So I would drink a glass of wine or, or a gin or a beer at the end of the day, and I would lift it and I would say, 
I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. But I always felt a little conflicted about it. And what I didn't notice was that my love for alcohol was growing. And it was becoming something I thought about throughout the whole day and really looked forward to. And at one point, I just kept asking the Lord, like, why do I still feel off about this? Because I couldn't see it as a, I didn't see it as a problem in my life. It's, I wasn't getting drunk, so it's not a problem. But he said, when I finally asked him about it very plainly, he simply said, put it away. So I put it away and my relationship with Jesus took off. There is something incredibly powerful about knowing you're fully surrendered to the Lord, knowing that there's nothing you are holding back from him. When you're in that place, it's like, whoosh, suddenly you can receive his love in a different way because you're the one who, by the way, the floodgates of your heart, which have a crank, which you can open or close the floodgates of your heart. And when you know that you're not holding back, it allows you to open the floodgates of your heart and really receive his love. Now, he does, it doesn't make him love you more, but it makes us re- resist his love less. At least that's been my experience. This is actually one of Evan Roberts' rules for revival was, if there's something doubtful in your life, just get rid of it. You cannot afford to keep your conscience conflicted because a, a defiled conscience messes with your faith, and your faith is your access to his love and to his presence. In neither of these places am I making a rule for everyone else. Oh, you can't listen to secular music. I'm not saying that. I, I do listen to secular music now. I can handle it now. I can enjoy it now. Now I can do it to the glory of God. Anything you can't do to the glory of God, you shouldn't do. And then the alcohol one, which was actually huge. I didn't know why the Lord asked me to put it away, but I know it, it led to a major upgrade in my walk with God. And I can't think of anything in my life that I've ever given up for God that I regretted. I have friends and they're like, I hate, I hate that I look at porn. They're like, Tim, I hate that I look at porn. And I, I've tried everything to quit. How can you tell me you've done everything when you're looking at it on the internet and you have the internet in your pocket on the very device we're talking about how much you hate it? It doesn't make sense to me. That's a hand. Cut that off. And you go, well, I, I don't need to. Well, you might not need to. You might be able to make other changes and get free without giving that up. But brother, are you taking sin as seriously as Jesus does? Are you taking your own condition, spiritual, emotional condition, your marriage, your health, you know? Because sin doesn't just take one little tiny portion of your life and, and, and make it bad. It comes in and it grows and it, like vines, like ivy, like cancer, like gangrene, it takes over and it ruins all sorts of stuff. Don't look me in the face and tell me I've done everything I can do. The gospel must not work. When look in the gospels and, li- and listen to the Jesus, the one who invented the gospel, what he, how he actually says the kingdom is supposed to work. You're not stuck in sin because of the gospel not working. That has never happened. God has not failed you. If you believe that, that's, that's not helpful. It's not truth and it's not helpful. Uh, another friend, heroin addiction. He says, Tim, I want to get free. I want to get free. I want to get free. But he doesn't come to church where the Spirit is poured out on him. The one time he did, he was crying and feeling God's love and his presence and being supported by God's people. He had community and it was like amazing. And that's the last we saw of him, right? Like, I want to get free of heroin addiction, Tim. But okay, I said, you, should, you need to enter something like Teen Challenge that's immersive and, and 
like boot camp that's fully a, a brand new lifestyle because you don't just have a small area of your life out of whack. It's your identity that's wrong, your friends are wrong, your morning routine is wrong, your core identity beliefs are wrong, your culture is wrong, your everything about the way you are living is completely connected to a whole lifestyle that is not healthy. If I could just kick this one thing, it's not just one thing, bro. The sin is in too deep for small changes. You need a complete overhaul. It's going to cost you a foot, it's going to cost you a hand, it's going to cost you an eye. Another thing we talked about last night was how does this actually work? How does grace that is more than external but actually comes to bring us into wholeness, how does it work? And in Romans 6 and 7, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but just real quick, Paul has such a radical upgrade for the believer, especially compared to what I would call the partial gospel that we tend to believe that I've, that I've sort of been familiar with in the United States here. So I'm just going to read a few verses. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. We might no longer be enslaved to sin. We might, Jesus died, says Paul, Romans 6, 6. Jesus died and you were in him when he died. So your old sinful self died with him. Jesus died so that you would no longer be a slave to sin. Did that happen or not? I'm telling you right now, some people say, well, it will happen once I'm finally dead. Friend, Paul agrees with you, but he thinks that you already died. In your baptism, you entered into the death of Jesus, and the old you died. Then Romans 6, 11 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, the word consider, I mean, reckon, it's, a, it's an accounting term. It means to do the math, to figure out correctly, line up the numbers in your ledger with what you actually have in your account. Now, you might not know you're dead to sin and alive to God. You might not know that. You might not think that way. But that's the truth that Jesus purchased you for. And I love that it's dead to sin and alive to God rather than righteousness. You expect it to say dead to sin, alive, maybe even to law, but he doesn't go there. Dead to sin and alive to God. It's intimacy. A person. Some people think, oh, we died to sin so we can belong to religion, the law. Stop doing what you shouldn't and do what you should. That actually doesn't work. Romans 7 expresses what that life looks like. It looks like somebody who doesn't do the good they want, does the evil they don't want to do, and they're a slave to sin. Why? Because the law wakes sin up. When we're under law, we're in the weakness of the flesh and sin eats our lunch. The only way out from that powerless condition is to get free from the law and enter into grace, the land of intimacy, the land of Holy Spirit, the land of love, the land of face-to-face with God. It's through intimacy that we are changed. But stuff can block intimacy. Sin can creep in to a disciple's life, block intimacy, shroud our conscience, compromise our faith, and and in ways we're not fully aware of. But Holy Spirit's aware, and sometimes he will ask us to give stuff up that we don't fully understand the why yet. Now, you're like, oh, but Tim, I'm, I'm so far from God. Just a few more thoughts. My guess is somewhere within you, if you're still, if you sit still in his presence 
and you just wait and you don't try to say much and you don't try to become something. You don't try to prove something. And you just sit and imagine yourself like in a, in a stream, that you're just sitting in the middle of the stream and, and all your distracted thoughts and all your doubts and fears and concerns and wanting to show off for God and wanting to pray and prove and fix and all that stuff, all the false self that just comes out in those distracted thoughts and unsettled feelings. If you just imagine that you're like a, a pen and as you sit in the creek, you just let the, the flow of the creek take all that ink all that dark stuff, just let it come up and let it come out and let the, let the stream wash it away until you're fully emptied and then just stay there. And once you're there in that place, can you, can you find, now we're going to switch the image, can you be still in that place and find that ember? Right, Second Timothy 1.6, fan into flame, rekindle. When, when you're rekindling a fire, you have to find the ember. You give your attention to the ember. Once you find it, you give your attention to the ember. Not the ashes, not what's lost, not what you wish you could be, not what used to be. You find the ember and you give your attention to the ember. You focus on the ember. You, you blow air on the ember. And you don't put a huge old log on it. You don't try to say, all right, we're going to get back to doing all the big, the big stuff. We're going to believe the big stuff. We're going to take a huge leap of faith. We're going to take on huge commitment. Don't, you're, you're going you're gonna to snuff out the ember if you try to throw a huge log on it. Just put some combustible material on it, right? Just some, some dried grass, some shavings, some paper, and then you blow on that. Little things. You just give them the little things. You give them the little yeses. We give them the moments. We give Jesus a foothold, so to speak. We give him our morning. We give him 10 minutes here. We give him the faith we do have. You know, maybe one day you'll have a big fire going. Right now, this is who you are, and, and let this be enough for today. And then you arrange the sticks. And then after the sticks, you arrange the logs, but you don't arrange the logs to smother the little fire. You, keep, you give it the ember space. You give the little fire space. The more fragile you are, the more structure you need to protect the ember. Maybe later you won't need so much help. Maybe later you won't need so much structure. Maybe later you won't need so much discipline. Maybe later you won't need so much help. But the smaller the fire, the more structure is required to protect it so it can build and grow. Maybe later you'll be able to just toss another yes on the fire, toss another responsibility on there, toss another faith on there. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. We're staying in the metaphor. But focus on the ember. Don't try to be something more than you are right now. Later you might be, but right now what you are is enough. Just belong to God in the condition you're in. But focus on the ember. Focus on the little faith you have. Focus on what you do know, not what you don't know. Give God what you do have, not what you don't. Let him breathe on it. And just be with God as you are in this moment and begin to surrender those little things again to the ember. Just some things I threw together and we talked about last night. 